Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. We've been in a just an incredible momentum as a house these last couple months, and we could credit it to many things, but I believe the main thing we credit this to is prayer. It's engaging heaven with prayer. And uh, we just had an incredible last few weeks, you know, Tommy Tenney was here, and he, he couldn't even get through his message without, without weeping. And because of the weightiness of the presence of God that that lives here. And I just want to say to us as a house that that right there does not happen by chance. That those, those depths and measures of God that we're living in, it does not happen casually. It happens by a group of people that lay their lives down and continue seeking the face of God saying, I will not move from this place until heaven comes. You know, we, we tend to think of revival as this big idea that we need hundreds of millions of people praying for the same thing we're praying. And I believe that that will happen as the return of Jesus comes. But if we look through revival history, really revival is not sparked by the masses. It's sparked by maybe five or six people who are just simply desperate for God. (laughs) That spark a movement that usher in thousands and thousands of souls being saved. And so I believe that we are, we are really at, at the precipice of a move of God here. And it's not just one man, it's just not one woman stewarding this, but this is a collective uh, art that we are engaging heaven with. And many times we can become overly familiar or numb to the things of God. And I really, I really feel like familiar, familiarity is one of the most dangerous tactics that the enemy uses to numb believers to the depths and realms of his presence. And I believe that one, one of the things the Lord is breaking in this hour is familiarity to his presence. You know, I remember growing up, I grew up like five minutes from my grandparents' house. And my grandparents had this, this really awesome swimming pool. It was this huge swimming pool that had a deep end, a diving board, a shallow end. And I never knew what life would be like without having access to a swimming pool, right? And so I just grew up just having the swimming pool, constant access to it. And so as I grew older, I invited my friends over one day to come swimming. And they came early in the morning and they just couldn't believe that I had this, this swimming pool. They're like, oh my gosh, you have a swimming pool. I'm like, oh, it's not that great. It's just a swimming pool. And, and after a couple hours of hanging out in the water, I was kind of, just kind of bored. I was ready for the next thing. I was ready to get on and do something else. And my friends could not get out of the water. They were just so, they were just so in love with, with the swimming pool. And I'm like, guys, let's, let's do something else. And they're like, no, it's a swimming pool. We got to stay here. And the entire day ended. They, they did not get out of the water until at, till nighttime, till dark. And I remember asking my mom, I was, I was younger. I was like, mom, why did they not want to do anything else? Why were they just so glued to the pool? And she said something that really struck me to this day. She said they stayed in the pool all day because they do not have free access to the same waters that you do. And many times I I truly, uh, we, we truly don't understand the value of the water we're swimming in until we realize that not everyone has access to these same waters. And I want to suggest to you that we are stewarding and cultivating a deep well here. This is a well called dwell. It's, it's a well of his presence. And that's what we're, we're stewarding here. We're, we're, we're contending for the floodgates to break. And I believe the levees are breaking. <laughs> the levees of his presence are breaking. And I just want to put it out there that there's more. There's more of God. There's, there's deeper realms of his presence. There's greater miracles that still have, have yet to be, to be ministered on the earth. There, there is more of heaven to come. There's more. And if anything, really this morning, 
I really want to implore us as a house to really guard the waters, to guard what we have. And, you know, King Hezekiah was an incredible king. He really had the, the potential to be as great of a reformer as David was. But King Hezekiah's greatest downfall was he exposed the hidden treasures of the kingdom to foreign kings. And that was his downfall. In other words, he treated what God called holy as commonplace. And to be a people of his presence that grows in his presence, that stewards it rightly, we cannot treat the things God calls holy as common. And I believe the Lord is really bringing back the the reverence and the holiness for his presence. You know, we've, we've really dumbed this thing down. I'm saying we as the global church really dumbed this thing down and we made it to how comfortable can we make this thing called Christianity? <laughs> and Christianity is, is anything but, but comfortable. We lay our lives down. It's, it's a death march to a life camp. <laughs> we lay our lives down. It, it's, it's costly and Song of Solomon 4.12 says, a garden locked up is my bride. Where a garden enclosed is my bride. And that's, that's why it's called a secret place. Secret, uh, secret places are built with secrets. It's by, by keeping the main thing, the main thing, keeping his, his presence holy, keeping the awe and, and keeping the reverence. And so to properly steward what has been given to us as a house, we can never treat the things God calls holy as common. <laughs> it's the pathway to his presence. It's the pathway to grow in the kingdom. And I've heard this said before, the only way to increase what you have is to intensify what you're doing. The only way to increase or keep what you have is to intensify what you're doing. And we, we referenced earlier the idea of striking the ground and and this is from a story in Second Kings. King Jehoash is being attacked by enemy armies, and he goes to Elijah or Elisha, and he says, "What do I do right now, prophet of God? I'm I'm being attacked." And Elisha said, "Strike the ground with this arrow." So he gets an arrow and just strikes it one, two, three times. And Elisha says, oh, I wish you would have struck it five or six times, but because you only struck the ground three times, you will only have three victories. If you would have struck the ground five or six times, God would completely annihilated the, the enemy. And I believe the implication of this story is the enemy will always occupy territory where there's an absence of passion. The enemy will always occupy territory where there is an absence of passion. And today I wanna, I'm gonna bring us back to our, our series called The Praying People. And what I wanna talk to you about today is passionate praying, passionate prayer. He's, he's calling his bride back to a place of, of, of passionate love for him, passionate, passionate prayer. And I believe the, the absence of passion in a people it's kind of like blood in the water for the powers of darkness. And so I believe to go where God is continually beckoning, beckoning us to go as a body, it takes passion in the place of prayer. Pastor Bill Johnson said that I've never seen one revival die because of too much passion. Never once seen God rebuke anybody in scripture for having too much passion in their hearts. And passion, I believe, is one of the most undervalued commodities in the life of a believer. And passion, it, it can't be manufactured. It, it, it can't be hyped up. God does not want to hype you up. He wants to fill you up. It, it, it's not about hype or, or any of that stuff. It's not about that, but it's beholding the one who has fire in his eyes. You want to know how do I get passion? You can't make yourself passionate, but you can position yourself to behold the one who is passion. That the more I see him, the more my heart is ignited with passion. It's ignited, ignited with love. It's looking at him, looking at Jesus. And I believe passionate prayer is enjoyable prayer. 
If prayer is not enjoyable, it is most likely it will not be sustainable for us. And so I just want to talk today about cultivating a passionate prayer life. See, passionate prayer, it's, I believe it's, it's not about how loud you say it. It's about how deeply you pray it. See, I've been to a lot of loud prayer meetings that weren't anointed at all, right? <laughs> just shouting doesn't, uh, it doesn't mean it's anointed or not, but it's not about how loud you say it, but it's how deeply you pray. It's about the intensity of the emotion that you have. And I talked a couple months ago, uh, Hannah, her, her prayer in First Samuel, it, it said that her lips move, but no sound came from her lips. So this right here is articulating this message to us that it is not about the volume of our voice, but it's about the depth of our heart. How deep are we digging into the depth of our heart when we connect with the Lord? My first scripture I want to I want to start with Romans 12:11 through 12. I can put that up. It says this. Be enthusiastic to serve the Lord keeping your passion toward him boiling hot. See, I believe the hour we're living in as a church body, we can't afford to be cold. We, we can't afford, I was telling our elder team when I was praying coming in here, we, I can't afford as a leader to come in here to warm myself up. I have to come in here boiling hot. I don't have the luxury to have a cold heart. And I believe the hour we're living in right now, it, it is calling for believers to maintain a boiling heart spirit, a, a heart that is boiling hot with passion. It says, radiate with the glow of the Holy Spirit. Let him fill you with excitement. Notice he does the filling. You can't fill yourself with passion. You can't muster up passion. It's not in, it's, we don't have that capability, but we can gaze at the one who is passion. Say, Lord, fill me. Lord, you know my heart better than I do. Come and touch me again, Lord, like you did when I was a child. Touch me when you first saved me. This communication with the Lord, it's language in your, in your prayer time. Radiate with the glow of the Holy Spirit. Let him fill you as you serve him. Let this hope burst forth within you releasing a continual joy. Don't give up in a time of trouble, but here's, how, here's the medicine it gives us, how to be passionate, but commune with God at all times. And another translation says, be faithful in prayer. Be faithful in prayer. So Paul right here is connecting a passionate heart to a faithful life in prayer. He's connecting faithfulness in prayer to getting a passionate heart. He's saying, do you want to know a roadmap to, to being vibrant for the Lord? You feel cold, you feel dead right now. Get on your knees and talk to God. Well, I don't feel it. Well, just because we don't feel it doesn't mean he doesn't feel it. <laughs> if you're facing a wall in the place of prayer, keep hitting that wall. It will break down. It will eventually fall. See, many people wait until they are passionate for prayer to start praying. And that plan I've learned in my life, it, it doesn't typically work. My, I believe passion for prayer comes by praying. It's that simple. I've said it before that in the natural, if you want to get hungry, you don't have to really think about it. You just don't eat and hunger comes. But in the spirit, it's quite opposite. In the spirit, Hunger comes by continually feasting and exposing yourself to the things of God. That is currency in the kingdom. And so if you want passion, if you're not passionate for prayer, not praying will not, it's not going to help you. What will, what will help bring passion into your place of prayer is by continually exposing yourself to the things of God. See, feelings make great servants, but they're terrible masters. That's so why I see in, in the Psalms, you see so many Psalms where King David is literally telling his soul, soul, why are you upset right now? Soul, wake up, wake up my soul. It's time to praise the Lord. Soul, bless the Lord right now. And many times you will have to tell your soul, it is time to pray. <laughs> soul, wake up, soul, it's time to pray. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. My soul will thank the Lord. Pretty soon your emotions will line up with your language. <laughs> will line up with what you're saying, your emotions. 
Your emotions cannot lead you. You lead your emotions. You tell your soul what to do. That's why fasting is, is so important because we are putting our body into submission, saying, stomach, you don't rule this house. You don't rule this temple. My spirit rules this temple. See, fasting is really, it's becoming more hungry for what you can't see than what you can see. That's what fasting does. It's, it's putting your, your, your try and being where a spirit, soul, and body, it's putting it into submission and making yourself more hungry for what you can't see than what you can see. And so I, I just want to hit on this because I want to say unanointed and uninspired prayer still moves heaven. It still moves heaven. It still has impact in the throne room. Just because you don't feel it doesn't mean God doesn't feel it. And I want to, there's a story I heard. How many of you have heard of Mike Bickle before? He's uh, just a hero of mine, but he, he leads what is called the International House of Prayer in Kansas City, Missouri. They call it IHOP, not Inter- International House of Pancakes, but International House of Prayer. And uh, they do 24-7 prayer and worship. It started, I believe, uh, 1998. So for I guess, what is that? More than 20 years, they have been having a continual 20-year prayer meeting, not stopped. Even on Christmas, even at 2 a.m., you can go on YouTube, type in IHOP, International House of Prayer, and you will see their prayer sets. They are continually stewarding this, this, this flame of prayer. And Mike Bickle, whenever he first started IHOP, he was saying the, the prayer meetings were just really boring. <laughs> there was just a lot just of not happening. It was just very mundane, just very monotonous. It just felt like, Lord, are we making any impact? Have you ever felt like that? Is this doing anything right now? And one morning he drove up to the prayer house and he parked his car. And when he got out of the parking lot, he heard this loud band and chorus, the sound coming from the prayer room. At first, he was afraid that the sound system would get busted. So he he ran into the, the prayer house. And when he went in, he just saw two men laying on their faces in prayer, weeping before the Lord. There was no band. There was no choir. There was no chorus happening. It was just two men weeping before the Lord. And he realized this was a spiritual phenomenon that he, the Lord is basically telling him what you see as mundane prayer. This is the impact it's having in heaven. This is what I'm hearing in heaven. When two men are on their faces weeping to you, it may, may look dead and cold, but to me, I hear a chorus. I hear a band. I hear sound in heaven. This is the impact our prayers make in heaven. Monday morning prayer at 6 a.m. I don't always feel like being here. I lay down and I put my, my mind into the Revelation 4 and 5 throne room scene of heaven. The Revelation 4 and 5 throne room scene. That's, it speaks of the, the angels and the elders crowding around the throne, casting their crowns, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it says right, right in front of the throne, not in the back seat of the throne, not in the back row, but right in front of God's throne is a bowl that holds the prayers of the saints. And it's constantly coming before the Lord. So 6 a.m. Monday morning prayer, I may not feel it. I'm just, I'm just into my two sips of coffee. I'm putting my mind in Revelation 4. My prayers are not just hitting the ceiling. They are going into this bowl. They're filling a bowl right now with the prayers of the saints. This is what is called harp and bowl worship. Friday at noon prayer, there was only about three people in the room, but I can imagine the magnitude that sound had in heaven. <laughs> Didn't make much of a sound on earth, but I can imagine what we, how we marked heaven with our worship. So don't measure your prayer life by, by, by size or, or even feelings. Passion is not always a feeling. So I believe the Lord, though, is, is really calling the bride calling the church to have passion because we're headed towards a wedding. We're headed towards a wedding. I wonder how Emily would have felt on our wedding day if I had no passion to marry her. That would not be good. See, we're, we're, we're heading towards a wedding. History is not winding down to one terrible conclusion. It's winding down to one glorious celebration. There's a wedding ahead and He's preparing us to be a bride filled with passion for our groom, with love in our eyes, with fire in our eyes for him. 
And I believe there's a, there's really this cry that's emerging in the globe right now. This cry in the place of prayer that, that, that is saying, I am unwilling to be satisfied with the mere discipline of prayer. I am unwilling to be satisfied with the mere routine and, and duty of prayer. I have to have the breakthrough of prayer. I have to have the person of Jesus. I have to have him. It's not enough just to have a routine and a discipline. I have to experience the breakthrough of answered prayer. And answered prayer is food for our souls that fuels us for more prayer. <laughs> answered prayer fuels us for more prayer. You know, when I was growing up, I, I grew up in an amazing, amazing church. But really to put it delicately, I grew up in a church culture that really treated prayer as a, as a side issue. There wasn't really much emphasis on the thing of prayer. It was almost like, oh, yeah, we, we got it. Yeah, we pray. Yeah, it, it, that's great. But there was not much of an emphasis in our priority. And, and I just want to say when the body of Christ treats prayer as common, we treat his presence as common. And to be a house of consistent presence requires us to be a house of consistent prayer. And prayer, I believe it's so accessible that it is easily overlooked and easily missed because of how accessible it is. And typically the things that are most accessible to us are the things that are most missed and overlooked. Like that swimming pool I grew up with, it was so accessible to me that I just overlooked it. But to someone else, that was like, it was like SeaWorld. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. And so it's all about treating the main thing, his presence, as holy, having highest value, highest regard. That, that, that mentality of I've been there, I've done that, I've seen all the miracles, there's the scene, I've seen his presence, and that's, there's nothing more. That mentality right there, that's called callousness. <laughs> It's called callousness, and the Lord wants to tenderize that out of his bride. So growing up in, in this church culture, it was more of like <laughs> prayer was like a curiosity rather than a thing of diligence. And, you know, how many know scripture says that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, not a rewarder of those who curiously seek him. He promises to, to touch the diligent. And... And growing up in this, that, that culture, it was a very, uh, how many of you remember like the hyper grace movement in the 2010 decades? I, I grew up really in that decade of the hyper grace teaching. And there's a lot of, of great stuff in that. But I remember being in youth group, I would talk to youth leaders because I would have this passion for prayer that I didn't know what to do with. I had this passion for God. And I remember talking to youth leaders saying, I want more of Jesus. I want to spend more time with him. And, and I believe they were genuine, but they would tell me things like this. God loves you just the way you are. You don't need to spend any time with him. He accepts you just how you are. You're fine. And I'm like, I know he accepts me. I know he loves me. But that right there, that, that mentality, it, it dulls me. It keeps me in the shallow. I want the deep. I want him. And, and that, that language, that language right there, it dulls the bride. It, it it puts water on the flame of his presence. There was a spirit behind it, but it just wasn't the holy one. <laughs> and I just want to say that we have permission, you have permission to wage war on anything that wages war against your passion for God. And that is not called legalism. That is not called religion. That is called love. <laughs> that is called love. If I wage war in my heart against lust for other women, that's not called religion. That's called love because I'm married to one. I'm married to one. I have one woman, one, one bride. We are married to one. We're promised to one person, one, one man named Jesus whose eyes are beautiful like flames of fire, whose hair is white as wool. That's where we're going towards. Holiness. Holiness. You know, holiness is not... It's not saying no to a list of things. It's saying yes to one thing. It's saying yes to, his, to one thing, his presence. When I say yes to one thing, I don't even have to look the other direction at all these other distractions. I said yes to one thing. My mind is made up. And I believe in these, these last days, the body of Christ, we cannot have earthly mixture in us. 
He, he, he wants us pure. We can't be deluded with the ways of the world. We must be pure by looking at him. And how do we get pure? It's by praying and looking at him. We become like the one we worship. We become holy as he is holy the more we look at him. The best way we can get holy is saying, everybody, look at Jesus. <laughs> Declare who he is. Look at him. Look at him. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. You know, there, there, was, this, there was this line I, I heard a lot growing up that kind of, it was kind of another dagger to, to the passion of prayer in my life. And that line was, was this. It was, I sin every day. I sin every day. And as I was growing up, I was reading, reading scripture in, in the book of John. And John said, if you sin, not when you sin. If you sin, not when you sin. And I read Romans and I, I hear these scriptures that say, you are dead to sin, you are dead to sin, you are dead to sin. And I realize that I no longer have a sin nature anymore. If we identify as a sinner, then we will naturally reproduce sin. But Jesus did not die on the cross just to counsel your sin nature. He died on the cross to kill it. So that old man, that old nature, it's not in me anymore. It's dead. I have Jesus' nature, a nature of righteousness. So if I am the righteousness of Christ, I will naturally reproduce righteousness. So that line, I sin every day, is just not accurate because it says if sin happens, you have an advocate, not when it happens. Sin should not be a common thing in my life. It should be a once in a while thing. Righteousness is what naturally comes out of me. Righteousness is what naturally flows out of me. You don't even have to work to have righteousness comes out. It's already your identity. See, Adam ate from a living tree and brought death. Jesus died on a dead tree and brought life. Amazing things happen on trees. He crucified you. He didn't counsel or disciple your sin nature. He killed it. He killed it. He killed it. He took us, you know, before Jesus. Before Jesus, it was the leper touches you and you get sick. After Jesus, it's you touch the leper, the leper gets healed. He took us from the contamination of sin into the contamination of righteousness. You are the righteousness of Christ. It's who you are. And so why am I saying this? It's because we need to rightly know where we are seated when we approach the throne room. You don't need to come saying, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. No, you were a sinner. You are not a sinner any longer. <laughs> you are the righteousness of Christ. It says he has seated you in heavenly places. So when you approach the throne room, you're not approaching in this dark place. You're approaching him saying, I am seated right next to you in the right hand of God. I have righteousness in me. It's who I am. I have full access to come to the throne room. This is what he paid for. This is what he, he, he died for. This is our position when we come into the place of prayer. If you haven't realized recently, the earth is in crisis right now. <laughs> the, the kings are raging, the, the nations are raging, and, and I've heard it said that we are in a Psalms 2 crisis that is beckoning a Joel 2 response that will result in an Acts 2 outpouring. <laughs> A, a, a Psalm 2 crisis. What was, what was Psalm 2? Psalm 2 says, why do the nations conspire and the kings of the earth rise up? Are the kings of the earth rising up right now? Are the nations conspiring evil? Joel 2 says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. It will be a great and terrible day for the Lord. Great for those who are in Christ and terrible for those who are not in Christ. But here's the key. Here's the key of Joel 2. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Another word for calling on the name of the Lord is a word called prayer. What is the remedy? What is the medicine for the, what ails the earth right now? It is a people who are on their knees contending with heaven, filling the bowls in heaven, saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come bring justice on the earth. Come right the things that are wrong right now. That's, that's the medicine. And what's the result? Acts 2. Outbreak 
of his presence. Outbreak of his presence. Revelation 4 and 5, I just want to, I know I've been hitting on that, but I just want to read. I just want you to see what this, this actually says. And when you pray, picture this scene of where your prayers are going. Revelation chapter 5, verse 7. It says, I saw the young lamb approach the throne and take the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat there. So this is really the end times. Jesus right here in this moment is about to break the seal, open the scroll and begin the transition of the tribulation of his return to the earth, of his coming. He's coming back. So he, he takes the scroll of the right, from the right hand of the one who sat there. And when the 24 elders and the four living creatures saw the lamb had taken the scroll, I can only imagine this happening in their heads. When they saw them, him take the scroll, they looked at each other and said, oh, it's going down. It's about to happen. It's happening. It's that moment we've been waiting for. He takes the scroll and they fall face down. What other response can you, can you give to that? Falling face down at the feet of the lamb and worshiped him. And this is, this is the part I want to get at. Each of them had a harp and golden bowls brimming full. Notice they're not empty. They're not 90% full, but they're overflowing with the sweet fragrant incense, which are the prayers of God's holy lovers. See, if the scripture said these are the prayers of the angels, then we would have every right to sit back and say, okay, you guys do all the work. I'm not going to pray. But because it says these are the prayers of the saints, we lose our right to be spectators. And we're invited to co-labor with heaven for Jesus' return on the earth. See, the event that, that really, I believe, triggers the return of Jesus is the truth that these bowls of prayer are filled. They're filled. And so anytime you gather, even the, a whisper of prayer, anytime you gather in your prayer room or you gather here corporately or you, you're at your work, just saying a quiet whisper, these prayers are all accumulating into this bowl of incense that is calling out for Jesus to come back, to come back and redeem his bride. We're, we're praying into this place in heaven. So I want to give you just as, as I finish out, three keys for cultivating passionate prayer, passion in your prayer life. And the first one that I want to give you is passionate prayer is birthed from fixation and adoration. Passionate prayer is birthed from fixation and adoration. And I live with this, this conviction in my prayer life that intercession without intimacy will result in burnout. <laughs> if you have intercession apart from the intimate part, the intimacy with Jesus, it will result in, in a place of burnout in your life. I heard I've heard stories of, of the old time intercessors in, in churches that would, would walk around just with this heaviness on their face because of the heavy burdens they carried. And that's why Jesus said, whenever you fast and pray, put oil on your face so that your countenance resembles the countenance of heaven. And I, I believe that if I go into pray and I leave the same as I went in. I wasn't praying, I was complaining. <laughs> it's like, there's a place for venting. There's a place for it. I'm not saying don't, don't tell God all your, all your troubles. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a, a way to rightly approach him. There's a, a way to rightly approach him. And David, King David discovered this way. When he approached the Lord in the shepherd's field, he didn't approach him by dumping and venting. He approached him by saying, I enter your gates with thanksgiving. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for my history with you. Thank you for the bear that, you, that, that I got. Thank you for the lion. Thank you for Goliath. Thank you, Lord. He remembered his history with the Lord. And then from there, he would encounter him with praise. Lord, this is who you are. He was becoming more aware of who God is than his own struggle, than where he was at in life. And then once you take this path through thanksgiving, praise and adoration, you don't even have any issues to really talk to him about because when his presence becomes more real to you than what you're going through, it's like, all I can do is just adore you and just tell you how beautiful you are. 
you know, Billy Graham, he, he had, has this quote that I have this quote actually printed out and it's placed right in my prayer closet. And I, I look at it every day and just, I don't want to ever get wrapped up in the, the hustle of ministry. You know, the hustle of ministry. I, I said intercession apart from intimacy results in burnout. Really, anything apart from Jesus results in burnout. <laughs> anything. If you separate ministry from Jesus, you'll be, you'll be messed up. You'll be, we've all encountered it. We've all seen it happen. And so I always like to keep this, this fresh in my heart. But they interviewed Billy Graham in 2011. And they asked him, if you could go back and do it over again, what would you do? What would you do differently in ministry? And Billy Graham, you know, he, he met with kings and presidents, and prayed, prayed with the most influential people on earth, was a pastor to movie stars, and had thousands, millions of people really get born again under his ministry, had stadiums. And this is what he said. He said, I would study more. I would pray more. Travel less, take less speaking engagements. I took too many of them in too many places around the world. If I had to do it over again, I'd spend more time in meditation and prayer just telling the Lord how much I love him. See, Billy Graham, he saw millions saved. He he hosted stadiums around the world. He met with presidents, but he realized stadiums do not feed his soul. He realized meeting influential people do, does not feed his soul. He realized having millions of people born again, that does not feed his soul. What feeds his soul is Jesus and Jesus alone. It's looking at him, telling him, I love you. I love you. I love you. These are the things that we, we take with us to the throne room. This is the gold we purchase in the throne room is by prayer, by fixation on him. And it's so simple, it's really easily overlooked. I said it a couple months ago, but more happens in one hour of staring at Jesus than an entire day spent on your own strength, spent on your own abilities. And, you know, there are, there are really two different extremes I've seen in the place of prayer. There's two different pendulums. And one of the pendulums is that I only seek Jesus for intimacy and I never ask him anything. It's beautiful. I love that. And then on the other side, it's I treat God as an ATM machine where I only ask him for things and never seek him for intimacy. And both extremes, I believe, are, are really unbiblical because first it says, come to him with thanksgiving and praise. And then so many scriptures says, ask of me, ask of me, ask of me. It does not make you more holy to not ask Jesus what's on your heart. <laughs> he wants to the engagement. He wants the, the ask of heaven, ask of me. When he invites us to a place of prayer, it's not an invitation to persuade him. It's an invitation to engage with him. He wants the engagement. He wants the relational side of it. So I want to really quickly go, go to the model, the model prayer in, in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And uh, I want to start by, by reading this. Many call this the Lord's Prayer and up until a couple weeks ago, I called this the Lord's Prayer too, but I felt a better name for this prayer would be what most translations call it. It's called the model prayer. It's because this prayer speaks of repentance and forgiveness of sins, and Jesus had no sin. So I don't, I want, I want to call this the Lord's Prayer because Jesus did not have sin, so I want to call this the model prayer. And this is not necessarily a specific word-for-word -word prayer we must pray, but it's a a a template, there you go, value system. Thanks, man. It's a value system of how we should approach the Lord. So verse one, Luke 11, it says, he was praying in a certain place and when he finished, one of his disciples said to, to them, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples to pray. I love that line, teach us to pray. Notice, we all know we need to pray. We all know we should pray and these disciples they're not saying, tell me I should pray. Tell me I need to pray. They're saying, take me by the hand, Jesus, and introduce me to communication with the throne room. Teach me the art of interaction with heaven. 
take my hand. And I believe the Lord is awakening this cry in his church saying, Lord, teach us to pray again. Teach us to pray. Jesus' life provoked people around him to ask him, show me how to pray. And this isn't a question to shame us. It's a question to provoke us. But do people admire your prayer life? Is that something that people are drawn to? It's, it's something that, that Jesus' disciples were drawn to. And so verse 2, verse 2, Lord teaches to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to him, then when you pray, notice he didn't say if you pray, but when you pray, say this, Father, your name be honored as holy or hallowed be your name or our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. And that word hallowed means to be honored, to be revered, and to be feared. And the word name, it's not just the name of God. It speaks of the character, the person, and the personality of the Lord. So this is a blueprint saying when you approach heaven with intercession, approach him becoming more aware of who he is and where he is than where you are and where you're at. (laughs) Become more aware of who he is, of his nature. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Praying prayers in the atmosphere of the fear of God, it doesn't weaken prayer, but really I believe it intensifies our prayer. It takes a broad prayer scope and it turns it into this laser beam of effectiveness to the throne room of heaven. And we haven't really touched on this in our, in our series on prayer, but I want to really hit on it just briefly right now. The gift of tongues, the gift of praying in the spirit. See, I, I believe praying in the spirit is really like the tenderization of the heart. It really tenderizes our heart to the things of God. It wars against callousness. And 1 Corinthians, I want to read this, 14, 14. It says, when I pray in the spirit, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. You know, so many times our minds are just running, 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 and we need our minds to stop, and we need our minds to, to not be fruitful for a season. Praying in tongues shuts that off. It says, when you pray, your mind is unfruitful. Sometimes we need that. We need the, unfruitful, we need the fruitfulness of our mind to just, hey, halt it for a moment. Gaze your eyes on Jesus. And just a few benefits of praying in the Spirit. I'm going to go through these really quickly, but... Here are some benefits scripture gives us. First one is you speak the will of God. That's Romans 8, 27. You speak the mysteries, you speak mysteries to God, 1 Corinthians 14. You build yourself up and improve yourself, 1 Corinthians 14. You pray beyond your natural mind. You make progress and you keep yourself in the love of God. In other words, you keep yourself in that place of intimacy with him. Many times when we approach prayer, we're so used to asking God for direction when he just wants our affection. He wants our affection. He wants us to come to him with this affectionate love. Then out of that place, I'm going to go to my list and ask you for these things. Second thing I want to give you, number two, passionate prayer is costly. Passionate prayer is costly. It takes intentionality to have a vibrant prayer life. It doesn't come by chance. It doesn't come by just rolling the dice. It comes by intentionality. And I just want to say that there is gold waiting for you in your prayer room with your name on it. There's gold waiting for you in the prayer closet and has your name on it. Give yourself to the, to the place of prayer. I want, to, I want to skip through most of what I had here. We're running low on time. But I want to give you this story of of a man, he was, his name was Daniel Nash, and he lived a life of costly prayer. And I always look, like to look at revivals of past because it really gives me an idea of what's on the menu right now. <laughs> like, what, what did God do then? Because he can still do the same things now. What can I ask for? What's on the menu? And this man, Daniel Nash, was Charles Finney's personal intercessor. And he would go when Charles Finney was going to go minister and do a revival, he would go about two or three weeks in advance to that location and he would lock himself up and spend days and weeks praying, prepping the ground for the harvest of Charles Finney's ministry. And he lived such a beautiful life. And when he passed away, many people mark his passing as 
when Charles Finney's ministry started to decline. So this is really how important this man was in American church revival history. So I just want to read just this little excerpt of what this man was, who, who he was. Daniel Nash, he started out pastoring a small church in the backwoods of New York for six years and traveled with and prayed for a traveling evangelist, Charles Finney, for seven years until his death. As far as we know, he never ministered outside the region of upstate New York during days when much of it was frontier. His tombstone is in a neglected cemetery along a dirt road behind a livestock auction barn. His church no longer exists. It's meeting house location marked by a historical marker in a cornfield. The building is gone. It's timber used to house grain at a feed mill four miles down the road. No books tell of his life story. No pictures or diaries can be found. His descendants, if any, cannot be located. And his messages are forgotten. He wrote no books, started no schools, led no movements, and then generally kept out of sight. Yet this man saw revival twice in his pastorate. I want to go down here. It says, in many ways, he was to the United States what praying Hyde was to India. He is known almost exclusively for his powerful prayer ministry. During his first year of pastoring a church, he saw revival with at least 70 being converted. Typical church problems began to arise in his ministry and were dealt with clearly by church discipline, broken contracts between members, heresy regarding the Trinity. And a meeting house was built beginning of June 7th, 1819, and dedicated to the service of God. Such a ministry would seem to be the basis for a long-term relationship. However, on September 25th, 1822, a strange church meeting was called at an unusual time. And this man, Daniel Nash, was voted out of the church by a vote of nine to three. The only reasons surviving to this day of why he was voted out was they wanted a younger man to settle in. At the age of 46, they felt him too old and resented his traveling. While his term as, as pastor was ended as of 1822, he often came to preach and act as a moderator in years later. During this ending of his pastoring and the ministry that followed, there was a second move of revival where over 200 were converted. This occurred in a township of only 308 homes with a population of approximately 2,000 people. Imagine God blessing this rejected pastor with such a revival and the church taking no steps to get him back and recall him to being pastor. Through all of this, God was breaking and preparing the heart of his man to leave a public ministry of preaching for a private one of prayer. Such rejection by those he loved and had ministered to did its crushing work. And by 1824, he was so damaged spiritually that any human hope of a prayer ministry seemed impossible. Later, he met Charles Finney, and it says during this time, for several weeks, he chose to be kept up in a dark room. I'm gonna, sorry, I'm gonna go back. <laughs> After this meeting, he met Charles Finney, and Daniel Nash was struck with a disease called inflamed eyes. And so for several weeks, he had to be kept in a dark room where he could neither read nor write. And during this time, he gave himself up almost entirely to prayer. He had a terrible overhauling of his whole Christian experience. And as soon as he was able to see with a double black veil before his face, he sallied forth to labor for souls. His labors did not take the form of personal evangelism or evangelistic preaching. Instead, he began one of the greatest ministries of prayer evangelism recorded in history. This rejected and broken farmer and former preacher gave himself to a labor that would influence praying people to this day. It was said of this by Leonard Raven Hill. He had an encounter. He said, I met an old lady who told me a story about this man. He said, Two men knocked on the door of, of a humble cottage one day wanting to lodge. It was Daniel Nash and his friend. This poor woman looked amazed for she had no extra accommodations. And finally, for about 25 cents a week, the two men, none other than Daniel Nash and his friend, rented this dark, damp cellar for the period of Finney's meetings. And there in that self-chosen cell, those prayer partners battled the forces of darkness. I want to read one more thing. On one occasion... When I got to town to start a revival, a lady contacted me who ran a boarding house. She said, Brother Finney 
Do you know a Father Nash? He and two other men have been at my boarding house for the last three days, but they haven't eaten a bite of food. I opened the door and peeped in at them because I could hear them groaning. And I saw them down on their faces. They have been this way for three days, lying prostrate on the floor and groaning. I thought something awful must have happened to them. I was going to go in and I didn't know what to do. What would you, what would you have me do about them? He said, nothing is necessary, Finney replied. They just have a spirit of travail and prayer on them. Someone asked Finney what kind of man this Father Nash was. We never see him, they said. He doesn't enter into any meetings. Finney replied, like anybody who does a lot of praying, Father Nash is a very quiet person. Show me a person who is always talking and I'll show you a Christian who never does much praying. I love this, that Daniel Nash, someone who is so hidden, no one knows about this man, but his hiddenness, it, it was his, his, his sickness with his eyes, his rejection of people saying he's too old that led him to be in a dark room where he turned that dark room into a prayer room. And it ignited a fire that sparked the second great awakening that would shape a nation. I just wanna say, allow the pain and the brokenness in your life. If you funnel it correctly, the rejection, navigating your heart through rejection, navigating your heart through betrayal, if you funnel it correctly, that is oil that you steward and bring before God that will thrust you into your destiny. It's oil for you. One of the greatest challenges of our Christian life is navigating our hearts through loss, betrayal, pain, and, and suffering. And many times these things will either push us away from the place of prayer or if we use it correctly, it will funnel us to a deeper place of the presence of God. This is what Daniel Nash did. I wanna end right here, if I could get piano up. Number three, lastly, passionate prayer is more about the process than the promise. Passionate prayer is more about the process than the promise. There is a clear truth in scripture that invites us into this place of persistent praying. And I wanna read in Luke chapter 18, this is the scripture that I feel illustrates this the best of persistence in prayer. It says this, one day Jesus taught the apostles to keep praying and never stop or lose hope. He shared with them this illustration. In a certain town, there was a civil judge, a thick-skinned and godless man who had no fear of others' opinions. And there was a poor widow in that town who kept pleading with the judge, grant me justice and protect me from my oppressor. He ignored her pleas for quite some time, but she kept asking. Eventually, he said to himself, this widow keeps annoying me, demanding her rights, and I'm tired of listening to her. Even though I'm not a religious man and don't care about the opinions of others, I'll just get her off my back by answering her claims for justice and I'll rule in her favor. Then she'll leave me alone. The Lord continued, did you hear what the ungodly judge said? That he would answer her persistent request? Don't you know that God, the true judge, will grant justice to all of his chosen ones who cry out to him? Night and day, he will pour out his spirit upon them. He will not delay to answer you and give you what you ask for. God will give swift justice to those who, who don't give up. So be ever praying, ever expecting, just like the widow was with the judge. Yet when the son of man comes back, will he find this kind of persistent faithfulness in his people? It's interesting to me that in the process, everybody say process. In the process of her persistence, it says that she received a pouring out of God's spirit upon her. However, she never asked for the spirit of God to be poured out on her, but she got it in the process of her asking. And I believe there's something about the continual asking, the continual knocking, the continual seeking that actually transforms us into the person God is wanting us to become so we can properly sustain the magnitude of the promise we're asking for. I wanna say that again, that was a lot. Through the process of her persistent asking, knocking and seeking, is where she becomes transformed 
into the person who can properly sustain the magnitude of the promise she's contending for. See, typically, sometimes God waits until the maturity of your faith matches the magnitude of your promise. There is a blessing in the process of your praying. There's a blessing. There's a maturing. There's an enlarged. It's not that God is just ignoring you. It's, I believe he's saying, this continual exercise of knock, knock, knock. Can I get it today? Okay, I'm going to come the next day. Knock, 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 knock. There's this enlargement that happens that actually transforms you into the person who can properly steward and sustain what you are asking for so that your breakthrough does not become God to you. Sustaining what he wants to pour out on you. Don't neglect the persistence. There's blessing in it. There's a, a maturity in it. The continual knocking, the continual asking, the continual seeking. It's not transforming God. It's transforming you into the person who could properly sustain what you are contending for. Jesus, we thank you. When I was uh, 18... It's when I first fell in love with Emily, my wife. And I remember seeing her and I remember I was like, oh Lord, I really like her. She's beautiful. <laughs> and she had a boyfriend at the time. I'm not gonna go into that story. <laughs> Ask me afterwards, I'll tell you the story. But I, I felt like the Lord had spoken to me that said, this is your wife. And obviously I didn't tell her that or that would have freaked her out. Obviously men don't do that. And so I remember going to the Lord, Lord, I have these feelings. I have this, this desire. I want, I want her as my wife. What do I do? You're going to have to either take these feelings away or, or, or do something. And nothing really happened. I still had the feelings. She still had her boyfriend. <laughs> nothing was, was really happening. And uh, you know, there was a, a season where it felt like you know, we started talking. It was almost like we, we almost started dating. And I was like, oh, this is happening. Finally, I'm going to get what I asked for. And then several things happened. She was kind of going through her own thing. I, I was going through my, my thing. And it just didn't, it seemed like it was not going to work out. Just kind of fell apart right, right in my face. And I was crushed. I was broken. I was completely devastated. And I just remember those, it was like a four-month period of just being driven to my knees in the place of prayer and just seeking the Lord in a deeper place. I funneled that rejection. I funneled the, the heart sickness of the unanswered prayer and I let it fuel me to contend for heaven. I didn't really necessarily pray for her to be my wife. I just prayed for her. Lord, bless her. Lord, whoever she marries, Lord, just I pray that you would bless her. And I remember I went to this worship school for two weeks in, in July of, it was 2014. And, and it was at Bethel, it was at Redding in California. And I remember this one worship set, Jonathan and Melissa Helser were leading. They're incredible, incredible people. And they were leading worship and I was just so broken. I was so dark. It was so, I was so disappointed and devastated. I almost had this entitlement, like I deserve her. I deserve this woman. I almost had this entitlement in my heart. And I remember the Helsers, they were singing this song and they were singing this verse over and over again. And it, it was a phrase that went like this. It said, faithful and true, mighty to save. You're a good, good God. They said it over and over and over. Faithful and true, mighty to save. You're a good, good God. And you know, I grew up my whole life in church. So I heard for forever that God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. But how I many you know repetition really numbs us to, to phrases like that. So it was just really numb to me, the goodness of God. I, 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 I knew his acts, I didn't know his nature though. Like the, the children of Israel, they, they knew his acts, but Moses knew his ways. They knew, he knew his person. They knew he doesn't just do good things. He is good. I know his nature. He is faithful. It's not just what he does. It's who he is. So I remember standing there and telling the Lord, I was like, how can I sing this? It, it appears you're, based on your acts, you have not been good. Based on your acts, you have not been faithful. See, sometimes we need to talk to God with honesty like that. He can handle it. He can handle your honesty. I was like, how can I sing this to you right now? And 
I had such a deep encounter with the Lord. It's almost like he came down from heaven and he put his hand on my shoulder and said, son, you've got it all mixed up right now. You've got it all wrong. My goodness, my faithfulness is not based on what I do. It's based on who I am. Connect more with my nature than what I do for you. <laughs> Be more connected with my nature, with my ways than my acts. When you move my heart, I will move my hand. And so immediately I, I started opening up my mouth and saying faithful and true. Mighty to say, he's a good, good God. Right in the middle of this disappointment, I put that disappointment right in front of me, the rejection right in front of me. And I said over it, faithful and true, mighty to save, you're a good, good God. Faithful and true, mighty to save, he is a good, good God. And immediately that depression, that darkness broke over me, it shattered. It's almost like the Lord put a baseball bat to that place over my life and just shattered it. And I, I felt free, I felt free. And I remember that night, sleeping and I, I had this dream that I was watching Emily get married to another man. And in my, in my heart, I was like, I'm okay with this right now. I'm okay with this because you're good, because you're faithful. I still have your goodness. I still have your faithfulness. Even though I don't get my heart's desire, I still have you. So several weeks after that, I, I would, I came home and I would still had that lingering kind of discouragement, that nagging, and I would get on my face every day, say, Lord, you're faithful. You're good. You're faithful. You're good. I may not have the promise, but you're worth more than a thousand promises. It's you I want. It's you I want. And a couple weeks after that, Emily came into my life, and we got engaged a few months after that, and the rest is history. But I say that, I say that to say, lean into the disappointment in your life. Look in the face of the heart sickness of your life and let it produce a passionate prayer in you that connects you with the nature of God, that connects you in a deeper place with his perfection, with his faithfulness, with his goodness, with his beauty. Lean in to the heart sickness of life. Lean in to the unanswered prayer. Lean in. He's good. He's faithful. He's faithful. I want to just read this last scripture. I know I'm going a little over today. I want to just read this last scripture though in Luke 22, 39. This is, this is a prayer I like to look at when I'm going through a season of pain and agony because this is what Jesus prayed before he went to the cross. This is the agonizing pray, prayer he prayed. It says, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples followed him. When he came to the place, he said, pray that you may not enter temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed saying, father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. I want to say that again. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Allow the intensity of what you're facing determine the intensity of how you pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your beauty. We thank you for your perfection right now. We thank you, Lord. Lord, we see the beauty in the process, the beauty in the knocking, the beauty in the asking. You know, I love, I love it now when I look back in hindsight of that process the Lord put me through because now I'm not saying this just to get brownie points with my wife, but every time I look at her, I am reminded of that encounter of the goodness and faithfulness of God. I don't, I don't just see my spouse. I'm reminded she, she is like a historical marker of my history with the Lord. So I encourage you this morning, if I leave you with anything, lean in to the heart sickness of your life. So Jesus, we do that right now. Let's just get in a posture of prayer. If you want to stand up, if you want to get on your knees, we're just going to take a few moments. And Jesus, we thank you for your beauty. We thank you for this season of prayer. And we continually strike the ground, God. We refuse to stop. We refuse 
to settle for unanswered prayer. Lord, just as the persistent widow did, we, we beg you, we, we get on our knees, we say, Lord, do it today. If it's not today, do it tomorrow. But we continually ask. We ask and keep asking. We, not, we refuse to grow weary in the place of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the grace to contend in prayer. If, if you're in here, you're just like, I don't have a grace to keep praying. I don't have a grace. I'm too weary. I pray you would give the people this morning a grace to pursue in prayer. I pray for a grace to keep knocking, a grace to keep asking. If it's a loved one that does not know Jesus, Lord, I pray that, that you would give them a grace to keep asking for the, our family members to have heavenly encounters. We thank you, Lord. And worship team, if you guys could come up and just sing just for a, just for a little bit. I just wanna worship just for a few moments, but I just want us right now to lean in to what you're aching for, lean in to what you're groaning for, what you're asking for. I just want you to begin communicating with heaven, communicating with God about what you are aching for. If it's more of him, ask for more of him. If it's for a new job, ask for a new job. Heaven is open right now. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.